Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you again. Look forward to these upcoming Sundays. God willing, I'll be teaching on the parables. Today, open your Bible or access your device to Luke 12, verse 13, and we're going to talk about a fool's formula for failure. While you're finding that, I know that in your handout today, there's a note from Pastor Noel, and I just want to encourage you to be praying for him diligently every single day. You know, I was a pastor for 45 years before I retired, and it's tough. There's, there's a lot of discouraging things that happen. Yeah, I wish it could be said like that song where seldom has heard a discouraging word. That's not true of churches sometimes. So pray for him. In fact, right now, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and let me lead you as we pray for him and his family. Father, thank you that you're still calling men and women to serve you. And right now, we want to pray especially for Pastor Noel and ask God for you to restore his spirit, refresh his mind, and recharge his heart, Father. And I pray that when he comes back to lead the church again in a few weeks, Lord, you just give him a new vision, a fresh direction. And Lord, may this church continue to encourage him in the work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, my wife and I have visited a lot of churches, you can imagine. And uh, she and I agree on a few things. And one of the few things we agree on is this is a great church. This is a healthy church, not a perfect church, no such thing as a perfect church, but a very healthy church, and we are impressed with you and what God is doing through you and your staff. And you know, one thing I've already noticed is that the staff gets to, along together really well. Uh, they do. They like one another. And that's not true in every church. In fact, I heard a story, funny story about a minister of music who didn't like the pastor, so whatever the pastor would say, the minister of music would sing a song to sort of counteract it. For instance, one Sunday, the preacher preached on, we need to move out of our comfort zone. We need to get on the move. And Minister Music stood up and said, let's stand and sing. I shall not be moved. <laughs> Another Sunday, the pastor preached on the sin of gossip. And the Minister Music got up and said, let's stand and sing. I love to tell the story. <laughs> One Sunday night, the pastor said, you know what? If things don't get better around here, I'm going to resign. Minister of Music said, let's stand and sing, oh, why not tonight? <laughs> and so finally, the pastor had it. One Sunday morning, he said, well, I just want to tell you, Jesus led me to this church, and now Jesus is leading me away. The Minister of Music said, let's all stand and sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> but it is good to know that this staff gets along. Now, Luke chapter 12, the context of this is interesting, that Jesus has just been talking some really strong words about how God is able to throw body, soul into hell. And he's talking about things like hellfire and things like that. And then right in the middle of his sermon before thousands of people, these two brothers interrupt him and want to argue about their inheritance. So let's pick up there with uh, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, Hey, teacher, rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to them, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? In other words, he said, Do I look like Judge Judy to you? Now, what Jesus is going to do now, not only will he tell a parable, but all of you who are teachers, and I know many of you are, I want you to notice the pattern of teaching that Jesus followed. And this is a perfect example of it. Here's what he would do. He would give a life-changing principle, then he would illustrate it with a story, and then he would end with a succinct personal application. So let's look here. All right, 
Verse 15, here is the life-changing principle. Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of possessions. What a powerful principle. Now he's going to illustrate it with a story. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this. He said, I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. And yes, in the King James Bible, it is eat, drink, and be merry. That's where that comes from. But God said to him, you fool. I mean, circle that word. You fool, this very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? And then here he ends with this personal application. And that's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very careful about ever calling someone a fool. It's a dangerous thing to call someone a fool. In fact, in Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, Anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger, danger of the fire of hell. But yet, in this story, it is God himself who speaks to this rich farmer and says, you fool. I, I, I like to look at biblical art, and the great French artist, James Tussaud, uh, has painted 23 episodes from the life of Jesus. And if you go back to the first one there, the back away a little bit, the slide before it, you can see that there's a farmer sitting there, and he's surrounded by all these bags of wealth and money and, and livestock and goods. But behind, behind him, you see this image of the angel of death with his sword drawn to take his life. So, what kind of person constitute a, few, a fool in God's estimation? Well, there are four marks of a fool according to God. Number one, a fool equates material abundance with success. That's what a fool does. See, he thought he was successful because he had a lot of stuff. And you know what? You got a lot of stuff too. I have a lot of stuff. In fact, Americans have more stuff than anybody else. We fill up our closets with our stuff. Then we fill up our garages with our stuff. And then, we're, really, we're the only nation on earth that rents storage space for the rest of our stuff. That, that is an American phenomenon. 93% of self-storage units are in the United States of America, 7% in all the other nations around the world. We are just nuts when it comes to storing up, hoarding our stuff. And you know what? We tend to idolize uh, those people who make the most money. In fact, every year, about this time of year, in fact, it was last month, September, Forbes magazine names the richest Americans, and here they are. Richest American, Elon Musk with SpaceX, Tesla, and X, $252 billion. Number two, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, Amazon, $161 billion. Even with his ex-wife's income added, he's not as rich as Elon Musk. Number three, Larry Ellison, you may not recognize him. He's with Oracle. That's where all the AI is taking place, $158 billion. And then number four, Warren Buffett at age 93, and he sells the Berkshire Hathaway stock, $121 billion. And then number five, Larry Page, who 
uh, operates Google, $114 billion. Now, for decades, Bill Gates, Microsoft, was on the top of the list, but he's, he's in lone sixth place these days, only worth a little bit over $100 billion. Bless his heart. You say, well, Pastor, I know you're talking about rich people and this rich farmer, but you're not talking about me because I'm not rich. I, I, I don't hoard stuff. But you know what? Greed is not restricted to rich people. Sometimes people that don't have very much, they're greedy about it and they, they hoard it. They just want to say, give me, give me, give me more, more, more. In fact, when you compare you here in Nacogdoches County with the rest of the world, every one of you, every one of us, is rich. According to Google, the median income in Nacogdoches County in 2022 was $36,424. Now think about that, $36,424. Some of you don't make that much, but a bunch of you make a whole lot more than that. Well, there's this website you can go to. It's called the Global Wealth Calculator. You can plug in what your income is and if you go to that website and you plug in that your, your income is $36,424, you are wealthier. You ready for this? You are wealthier than 97% of the people in the world. You're in the top 3% if you're making the medium income. But, you know, people, they don't like to talk about money. They, and, and they get bristled up and upset about it. And I've had so many people, you know, say, I worked hard for what I have. I, I earned it. Well, everything we have in life is a gift from God. In fact, one of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. Pay attention to this. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. So just think about all the assets that you have right now. If God had just scrambled a couple of neurons in your brain, you, you, you'd have nothing. He is the one that gives you the ability to be wealthy. And it all belongs to God. He is the source of every good thing in our life. So first of all, a fool equates material abundance with success. Here's the second mark of a fool. A fool demonstrates a self-centered attitude. Not only was this rich farmer greedy. He was also eaten up with himself. He was egotistical. How do we know that? Because if you look in the text itself, he uses the first personal pronoun over and over again. In fact, if you have your Bible open, look again at verse 17. What should I do since I, there it is again, don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones and store all my grain, my goods there. Eight times in 37 words, he uses the first personal pronoun, me, me, me. I've been told that in South America, there's a bird that's called a Mimi bird. It only has one song, me, 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 me. I think there are a few of them in East Texas, amen? That's all they want to talk about, me, me, me. It says in Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in himself is a fool. You know, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a very small package indeed. And, you know, sometimes people can be so self-centered that they don't care about anybody else. You all recognize the name of Timothy McVeigh, who was angry at the government because he thought they had mistreated him with his military pension. 
So on June 11, 2001, I'm sorry, in April 19, 1995, he parked that Ryder truck in front of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City and exploded it, killing 168 people, including children. Well, he was arrested, convicted, and he was scheduled to die by lethal injection on June 11, 2001. But these are his last words. The last words he left in his cell, written down, was from the poem Evictus. Listen to his self-centeredness. I think whatever God's small g may be, for my unconquerable soul, in the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, that's a reference to what Jesus said about the straight gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Brothers and sisters, two nanoseconds after Timothy McVeigh died, he realized he was not the captain of his fate. He was not the master of his soul. But such arrogance, such self-centeredness, Compare him to somebody else that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. William Carey was one of the greatest Baptist missionaries ever who labored for decades over in India. And he, he worked for decades before, before there were any converts. He translated the Bible into four different languages and finally left a, a school there, a Christian school there. And when he died, these are the words he had put on his tombstone. Compare this to Timothy McVeigh. When he died in 1838... William Carey had these words, A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. What a selfless man he was. But you know, today, if some Fortune 500 company was interviewing Timothy McVeigh or William Carey, they'd probably hire Timothy McVeigh because he's a go-getter, hard-charging, but today William Carey has three colleges named after him, and there's nothing named after Timothy McVeigh. That's the second thing we learn about a fool. A fool is self-centered. Number three, here's the third mark of a fool. A fool estimates that more wealth will reduce stress. The more wealth you have, the less stress you're going to have. Did you hear what he said? He came to that place where he had all these wealth in his barns and built bigger barns, he said, take it easy. Take it easy. Isn't that what everybody wants to do? Take it easy. They want to live on easy street. I don't know if you all know this or not, but there is an easy street in Tyler. And I know some of the people that live there, they don't have it easy. In fact, it's hard to pull out on Paluxy. It's not easy at all. But everybody's wanting to live on easy street. So he thought that because I have all of this wealth, I'm going to have less stress. It's just the opposite. You know, the more wealth you have sometimes, the greater stress that you have in your life. All right, here's a Bible trivia question. If you know the answer, feel free to say it out loud. Who is the wealthiest person in all of history? Solomon. Good for you. Who said that? Yeah, Solomon. Because we have a listing of his assets a couple of places. And if in today's dollars, he'd be worth $2.1 trillion dollars. There are no trillionaires today. They're billionaires, but he was a trillionaire in terms of today's dollars. He, 
And the difference between Elon Musk and Solomon is that Elon Musk has to pay his employees, and Solomon had unlimited slave labor, no employment cost. But what did Solomon say toward the end of his life? You know, he, there's three books from Solomon. There's Proverbs. Probably most of those Proverbs came at the height of his wisdom. There's the Song of Solomon when he was a young lover. But then Ecclesiastes was written after uh, his wives, the Bible says, turned his heart away from God. And he became bitter. Can you imagine having a thousand wives? Don't answer, guys. Can you imagine having a thousand mothers-in-law? <laughs> but Solomon had everything. And here's what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. I want you to go outside after this service and see if you can catch the wind. Try to catch the wind. Try to contain the wind. You'll never do it. And Solomon said, I had it all. I tried it all. And all of it was absolutely meaningless. All right, here's another trivia. It's not Bible trivia, but trivia question. If you know the answer, you can answer it out loud. Who was America's first billionaire? America's first billionaire. You know the name. Spruce Goose. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was the first millionaire. He was worth $2 billion in the mid-1960s. You think he was happy? Listen, this is a true story. I mean, I'm personally connected with the story because even though I grew up in L.A., Lower Alabama, when I went off to college, my parents moved to Grand Bahama Island because my dad was in the timber business, and he started a company called Out Island Timber Company, and they lived outside of Freeport, Grand Bahama Island. They were just down the street from the Xanadu Hotel where Howard Hughes spent the last three years of his life on the top three floors of that, never coming out. He was a germaphobe, never cut his fingernails, never cut his toenails. My mother used to say she would walk on the beach and she'd look for funny-looking footprints with the, <laughs> with the toenails. And when he died, he was wasted away to almost nothing. He was 70 years old when he died. And if you look at a picture of him just before he died, he looks like he's 100 years old. See... Wealth does not relieve stress. It produces stress. You, know, you want to know how to have your stress relieved? Jesus is the great stress reliever. And the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, God, you will keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So here's our fourth mark of a fool. God says a fool miscalculates the length and the meaning of life, the length and the meaning of life. He missed it. Because here's what he said. He said two things. He said, I have much wealth and many years. Well, he was only half right, which made him 100% wrong. He had plenty of wealth, but he was out of time. He was out 
of days. And you know, for every one of us, God has allotted us a certain number of days to live on this, on this earth. In fact, that's why the writer James says, asked this question in James 4.14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So probably a couple of days into this week, it's going to be cold enough in the morning for you to get up and walk outside. You can see a vapor for just a second. It disappears. Compared to eternity, that is the length of life. It's just like a vapor that appears and then vanishes. And have you noticed, if you ask somebody how old they are, well, you're not going to ask a lady that anyway, but if you ask somebody how old they are, they're going to answer in years. I don't know why we do that, because the Bible says very clearly in Psalm chapter 90 that we should number our days because every day is a precious gift from God. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. This is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I don't know if you know how old you are in days. I do, because it's Google again. There's a website. You can put your birth date in there, and it tells you how old you are today. So today, I'm 25,853 days old. You say, Pastor, you don't look a day over 25,000. And, you know, I, I'm celebrating today because this is the day the Lord has made. I'm grateful for this day because we never know how many more days we have. God knows, but we don't know. The, the foolish farmer, he didn't know, and neither do we. I've always loved the music of Jim Croce. You're probably familiar with the song he wrote about time. He actually wrote this song when his wife Ingrid was expecting their first child. He said, if I could save time in a bottle, first thing I'd like to do to save every day till eternity passes away, just to spend them with you. If I could make days last forever, if words could make wishes come true, I'd save every day like a treasure, and then, again, I would spend them with you. But you know the tragic story behind that song? It did not become a number one hit until a few months after Jim Croce had died. Right over here at Natchitoches, Louisiana, taking off after a concert there on September 20, 1973, Jim Croce died, and that song hadn't even made it to the charts yet. But he had written a letter to his wife Ingrid that arrived at her home after he had died, and in it he said he was wanting to spend more time with her now that they were going to be parents. And here are the words he put in the letter. They're haunting. Jim Croce wrote these words. After all, life begins at 60, and I have 30 to go. He was 30 years old when he died. And he thought he had 30 more to go. But we never know. Only God knows that. So, if Jesus is right, and life does not consist of the abundance of things we have, what does life consist of? Simple. Relationships. Those are the most valuable things God gives us, relationships. A relationship with God. He's your father, you're his child, and your relationship with one another, in your family, in your marriage. Relationships matter so much more than things. And then again, on the application, Jesus warned, this is what's going to happen to anyone who hoards and is not rich toward 
God. So, okay, how can you be rich toward God? Well, it's just the opposite of being rich toward self. It's, it's not being greedy. It's being unselfish. It's, it's being generous. It's, it's giving away. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for... Here's the principle. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I want to confess to you that for decades of my ministry, I had that mixed up in my own mind. I used to really believe where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But that's not what Jesus said. He said where your treasure is, your heart will be there. And I heard this illustrated in a great way one time. A, a pastor friend of mine, their church was going through a mission emphasis, and they're trying to raise some money for missions, and one of the wealthiest members of that church came up to the pastor. He said, Pastor, I want to say to you, I just don't have a heart for missions. Can you tell me how I can get a heart for missions? And the pastor said, yeah, write, write a check for $50,000 on the spot. I guarantee you, you do that, your heart will be in missions. Because where you put your treasure, there your heart will be. Where's your heart today? Is it storing up treasures on earth? You know what, folks? You can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. Let's pray. Lord, we know that in the Bible there are tons of examples, some good, some bad. And I pray that all of us will learn from this bad example of a foolish farmer. And Lord, cause us to be generous. Create in us an unselfish attitude, one that gives to others and gives to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't understand the importance of having a relationship with you, I pray that today will be the day that they come to know you and to trust you as their Lord and Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song. There'll be some staff members down here around the front. You're invited to come to the front and interact with them or just kneel at the front and pray. If you want to talk to them about what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church Nacogdoches, want to talk to them about what it means to be a believer. How can I become a follower of Jesus Christ? Or I want to follow Christ in baptism or any other decision God may put on your heart. You step out and come. So let's stand together right now and as we sing, you come.